Chapter Seven of Molly Brown's Sophomore Days by Nell Speed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Debbie R. Baker Robinson. The Glee Club Concert. If a cross section could be made of this house, it would be rather amusing, exclaimed Judy Keene. In every room, there would be one girl buttoning up another girl. It was the evening of the Glee Club concert, and nearly everybody not a freshman was going to dine somewhere before the concert. Judy and Nance were invited to the McLean's, and Molly was to have dinner with Mary Stewart and her guests in the quadrangle apartment. During the process of dressing, there was a great deal of crosstalk going on at Queen's that night. Through the open doors along the corridors, voices could be heard calling, Has anyone a piece of narrow black velvet? margaret don't you dare go without hooking me up who thinks white shoes and stockings are too dressy oh my but you look scrumptious molly had saved her most prized dress for this occasion it was the one she had purchased the christmas before in new york and was made of old blue chiffon cloth over a slimsy satin lining with two big old rose velvet poppies at the belt it was cut out in the neck and the sleeves were short just before coming back to college, she had indulged in long, acre suede gloves, which she now drew on silently. She had received a letter from her mother that morning, and her heart was heavy within her. The letter said, The investment I made last summer has not turned out well. The young son has assured me that the family intends to pay back all the creditors, and I am trying not to worry. In the meantime, my precious daughter, you must not think of giving up college as you offered in your last letter, that is, until this term is over. Then we will see what can be done, although I am obliged to tell you that things do not look very hopeful about any present funds. Jane is to take a position in town as librarian, and Minnie intends to start a dancing class. Your brothers and sisters and I will get on, but, oh, I did so want you to have the advantages of a good education." but so much else goes with the education molly protested to herself so many pleasures and enjoyments somehow it doesn't seem fair for me to be going to glee club concerts when all my family are working so hard have you any stamps judy she asked suddenly as she hooked that young woman into her dress as many as you want up to a dozen answered judy they are in the pillbox on my desk Molly made her way through Judy's tumbled apartment and helped herself to the stamps. I'll return them tomorrow, she said absently, drawing a letter from her portfolio, slipping one stamp into the envelope and sticking the other on the back. What in the world are you writing to a real estate firm for, Molly? demanded Judy, looking over Molly's shoulder. Oh, just answering an ad. Are you so rich that you're going to buy a farm? I wish I were. Judy's curiosity never gave her any peace, and she now desired earnestly to know why Molly was corresponding with this strange firm. If it turns out well, I'll tell you, said Molly, but if it doesn't, you'll never, never know. You mean thing, and I thought you loved me, ejaculated Judy. I do, that's why I won't tell you. If I did, I would have to inflict something worse on you, and you wouldn't be so thankful for that part. I shall burst if I don't know, cried Judy in despair. Burst into a million little pieces then, like the Snow Queen's looking glass, and get into people's eyes and make them see queer Judy pictures and think queer Judy thoughts. Meanie, meanie, called Judy after her friend, who had seized her gray eider-down cape and was fleeing down the hall. I love all this, thought Molly, as she hastened up the campus to the quadrangle. 
I adore the gay talk and the jokes. Oh, heavens, but it will be hard to leave it. I understand now how Mary Stewart felt when she almost decided not to come back this year and then gave up and came after all. Molly felt she would enjoy the sensation of being waited on at a table that night instead of waiting herself, as she had done about this time last year at Judith Blount's dinner. She wondered if there would be a poor little trembly freshman to pass the food. But Mary was too kind-hearted for such things and had engaged two women in the village to cook and serve her dinner. The other guests had not arrived when Molly let herself into the beautiful living room of the apartment, which was now turned into a dining room. The drop-leaf mahogany table had been drawn into the middle of the floor and was set with dazzling linen and silver for eight persons. I wonder who the other two are, thought Molly. Is that you, Molly dear? called Mary from the bedroom. Well, come and hook my dress. How many yards of hooks and eyes had Molly joined together that evening? And here's something for you. Willie, when he found out you were taking him, sent you some violets. Heavens, cried the young girl, after she had finished Mary and opened the large purple box. Oh, Mary, this bunch is big enough for three people. It's only intended for one, and that's you, laughed the other. The bouquet was indeed as large as a soup plate. I don't think I'd better wear them to dinner. I couldn't see over them. I should feel as if I were carrying a violet bed on my chest. And so you are. No doubt it took all the violets from one large double bed for that bunch. But you had better wear them at first and take them off at the table. Brother Willie is one of the touchiest young persons imaginable. Father and I have always called him the sensitive plant. Hastily, Molly pinned on the enormous bunch which covered the entire front of her dress. They are coming now, she said, hearing steps in the next room and, peeping through the door, she beheld Brother Willie himself, resplendent in his evening clothes, in company with two other equally resplendent beings, all wearing white gardenias in their buttonholes. My goodness, they look like a wedding, Molly whispered to her friend. Aren't they grand, laughed Mary, and here I am as plain as an old shoe, and never will be anything else. You are the finest thing I know, exclaimed Molly tucking her arm through her friends and allowing herself to be led rather timidly into the living room. The third girl at this fine affair was another post-grad, and presently Molly rejoiced to see Miss Grace Green enter with her brother Edwin. Miss Green looked very pretty and young. She kissed Molly and told her she was a dear, and smelt the violets and pinched her cheek, glancing slyly at the three young men, any one of whom might have burdened her with that huge bouquet. And did not such bouquets argue something more than ordinary friendship? As for the professor, he glanced at the bouquet almost before he looked at Molly. Then he shook her stiffly by the hand and, turning away, devoted himself to the postgrad. Do they know that my mother has lost all her money in their cousin's mine? Molly thought. Perhaps that's the reason why Professor Green is so cold tonight. He's embarrassed. At dinner, Molly sat between Will Stewart and an elegant, rich young man named Raymond Belair, who talked in rather a drawling voice about yachting parties and cross-country riding and motoring. At college, you know, the fellows are awfully set on those little two-seated electric affairs. What car did Molly prefer? Molly was obliged to admit that she preferred the Stewart car in New York, whatever that was, it being the only one she had ever written in. The young man screwed a monocle into one eye and looked at her. He was half English and had half a right to a monocle, but Molly wished he wouldn't screw up his eye like that. It made her want to laugh. 
However, he didn't appear to notice at all that she was endeavoring to keep the irresistible laugh curve from her lips. He only looked at her harder and then remarked, I say, by Jove, you'd make a jolly fine Portia. Did you ever think of going on the stage? Oh, no, I'm going to be a schoolteacher, answered Molly. Schoolteacher, he repeated aghast. You, with that hair and, by Jove, those violets. His eyes had lighted on the mammoth bunch. Tell that to the Marines. Molly flushed. The violets haven't anything to do with my teaching school, she said a little indignantly, and neither has my hair. Didn't you ever see a red-headed schoolteacher? Not when her hair curled like that and had glints of gold in it. You're teasing me because I'm only a sophomore, she said, and turned her head away. No, by Jove, I'm not, though, protested Raymond Belair, looking much pained but Molly was talking to Willie Stewart at her right. That young man was the most correct individual in the matter of clothes, deportment, and small talk she had ever seen. She thought of his splendid father who had started life as a bootblack. I wonder if he's pleased with his fashion plate son, she pondered. She didn't care for him or his friends. They were not like the jolly boys over at Exmoor who had talked about basketball and football and swapped confidences regarding Latin and Greek in that awful French literature examination, and what this professor was like, and what the praxi said, or was supposed to have said, and so on. It was all college gossip, but Molly enjoyed it and contributed her share eagerly. She tried a little of it on Brother Willie. "'Are you taking up higher math this year, Mr. Stewart?' she asked. "'Oh, after a fashion,' he answered. I don't expect to stay at college after this year. I'm going to Paris to finish off. Molly wondered what higher math after a fashion really meant. At the concert later, it was a relief to find herself next to Professor Green, who had scarcely looked in her direction all through dinner. At first, she felt a little embarrassed, sitting next to the professor, who was a great man at Wellington. She began silently to admire the packed audience of young girls in light dresses with a generous sprinkling of young men in evening clothes. You'll probably be a member of the club next year, Miss Brown, the professor was saying. I'm sure you must sing. I am surprised they have not found it out by this time. Next winter you must... I doubt if I am here next winter, interrupted Molly, and then blushed furiously and bit her lip. She wished she had not made that speech. Is anything going to happen that will keep you from coming to college next winter? He asked, glancing at the violets. How can I tell what will happen? She answered childishly. Then why not come back next year? Because, because, she began. Oh, here they come, she interrupted herself to say, as the members of the glee club filed slowly out and took their seats. Aren't they sweet in their white dresses? Very, answered the professor. But what's this about next year? It was just idle talk, wasn't it? No, no, whispered Molly, for the first number was about to begin. Hasn't Mr. Blount told you anything? Why, no, that is nothing about you. What on earth? Didn't you have a list of the stockholders? You mean of the square deal mine? He asked in entire amazement. Yes. I have a list, but what of it? My mother's name is there, Mrs. Mildred Carmichael Brown. Great heavens, groaned the professor. Then he sunk far down in his seat and buried his face in his program. Jenny Wren opened the concert with this song, which suited her high, bird-like voice to perfection. Oh, I wish I were a tiny, browny bird from out the south, settled among the alder holts and twittering by the stream. 
I would put my tiny tail down and put up my little mouth and sing my tiny life away in one melodious dream. I would sing about the blossoms and the sunshine and the sky and the tiny wife I mean to have in such a cozy nest. And if someone came and shot me dead, why then I could but die with my tiny life and tiny song just ended at their best. There was something so moving about the little song that Molly felt she could have melted into a fountain of tears like Undine, and she was obliged to smile and smile and pretend that her heart wasn't breaking because her tiny life and tiny song at Wellington, her beloved Wellington, were soon to come to an end. The professor, too, was stirred. He glanced once at Molly's smiling lips and tearful eyes and blew his nose violently. Then again he contemplated the program with great interest. During the intermission, Molly and Will Stewart went visiting down the aisle. Half the audience was moving about, talking to the other half, and the hall was filled with the buzz of laughter and conversation. I love it, I love it, Molly kept repeating to herself. There couldn't be anything more perfect than college. Oh, do I have to give it up? Hey, Miss Molly, called Annie McLean in a nearby seat while Judy and Nance and George Theodore Green were waving violently to her and Lawrence Upton was shaking hands with her and assuring her that the dinner had been a failure because she hadn't been there. Fortunately, Judith was well out of earshot behind the scenes. The Williams sisters from across the aisle were calling in one voice, Molly, come and meet our brother John. Margaret Wakefield, causing a sensation with her distinguished father and enduring the gaze of the entire audience with the calmness of one reared in the public eye, detained her for a moment to introduce her to the famous politician. A real bell, said Miss Grace Green to her brother, leaning across two seats to speak to him, is one who is just as popular with women as with men, and Miss Molly Brown of Kentucky appears to be a general favorite. The professor looked at his sister absently. Apparently, he hadn't heard a word she said. He was saying to himself, I think I'll let the tenors sing that little lyric that begins, Eyes like the skies in summer. After a while, the delightful affair was over, and Molly, feeling immensely happy in spite of her anxious heart, had been escorted to Queens. Professor Edwin Green, hastening into his room, flung his hat in one direction and his coat in another and sat down at his desk. Without an instant's hesitation, he seized a pencil and the first scrap of paper he found and began to write. Dear Richard, I know that your cares are many, but get to work on the score of the opera. I find that by working at night for a week, I shall be able to finish the last act and make all the changes you suggested. We must launch the thing now. I have overcome all scruples, as you call them, and I want nothing more than to get the opera into some manager's hands. If you think that Blum and Starks will take it up, you had better see them at once. My name may be used and everything that goes with it in the way of previous unimportant literary efforts. It's unusual, of course, for a professor of English literature to write a comic opera, but the very unusualness may give it some publicity and help the thing along. I have made one change without conferring, given the tenor lover the baritone villain's song, Eyes Like the Skies in Summer. Write something very pretty for that, will you, old man? The money we may make on this will help some in the present critical family situation. I understand that there have been a good many failures in light opera this winter, and the managers are looking for good things. It may be that we shall strike at the psychological moment. Yours, E.G. 
the august professor then wrote two other letters one to a firm of bankers and one to his publishers at last getting into an old dressing gown and some very rusty slippers lighting a long black cigar and drawing his student's lamp nearer he took an immense roll of manuscript from a drawer and fell to work it was three o'clock before he turned in for three hours of troubled sleep end of chapter seven